Sherlock Rappers both cover designs of the Guinness Book of Classic British TV. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is writer Paul Cornell. Paul, what are you up to and where can we find it? I think my ongoing series right now would be the Lichford series of novellas from Tor.com. Three of those out already. Um, magic in a small Cotswolds village. Lots of comedy, but actually quite dark as well. And also, uh, because everything else I'm doing is, is top secret and exciting, but top secret. I'm um, the co-host of Hammer House of Podcast, where myself and Liz Miles watch all the Hammer horror movies in UK release order. And that does come highly recommended them must say but i hope one of your top secret projects is a revival of your first choice which let's just have a listen to the amazing theme music Well, sorry about the slightly ropey quality, but it's the best anyone could find it in anywhere. That was a theme for Phoenix 5. But, Paul, what was Phoenix 5? Phoenix 5 was Australia's answer to Star Trek. It was shown in Britain, I think, on BBC Two on a Saturday afternoon, like so many extraordinary things that people no longer remember. And I remember being absolutely terrified of it, being of an age to be absolutely terrified by anything. I have seen an episode in my 20s, which was on a much passed around VHS cassette. And um, it's hilariously bad. Basically, it's got zero budget. The episode I saw is called Slave Queen, and it features two guest stars, a queen who is being held on a, as a slave on an alien planet. Our heroes have to land on this planet in their spaceship, which they do by, we see the camera lowering itself to the ground in the Australian outback. And so we just see it from their point of view. We see no model shot even. We do not see the exterior of their spaceship. They go and find a little, what looks like a water tower in which the queen is being imprisoned by one alien. And that alien is a man in a helmet with a sword. They knock him out. They rescue the queen and then they spend most of the episode trying to uh, re-educate her in what it is to be a queen which involves um, the female member of the cast talking to her a lot about frocks as the male member of the cast puts it and uh, they have with them their computeroid carl who is the most wonderful man in uh, some silver foil and uh, a dustbin you have ever seen. It is a work of genius. The reason I think perhaps it is not fondly remembered is that we know what the tastes of Australian SF fans are. We hear about the goodies. We hear about how they kept Doctor Who alive and repeat for such a long time. I have never heard from them about Phoenix Five. <laughs> I do not think this is the subject of uh, great nostalgia. No, the only places I've ever seen references to it are people who watched it in the UK. I think it may also have done the rounds in some ITV regions in the summer holidays by the sound of it. But it's like the Red Hand Gang. I don't know a single American that remembers that. But because it was just endlessly, endlessly shown in the school holidays here, there is even, there's an American kids TV Saturday morning website that mentions the Red Hat Gang, says we don't know anything about it, but 
if you look on Google, everyone talking about it's from the UK. And so I think Phoenix Five is probably like that. Australia have probably tried to forget it, and they've been reminded of it by us. <laughs> but as I say, I I recall the opening title sequence as being a thing of terror because, of course, all science fiction terrorised me as a child. Uh, this is before I had plucked up the courage to start watching Doctor Who. I really want to see more of them because if that that one is anything to go on, it's it's staggering. Well, I did look into it and found out that it wasn't actually a standalone series. There were two prequels to it. Were they called Phoenix 4 and Phoenix 3? Nearly. There was the Interpretaris or something in 1966. I don't know how you're supposed to say that. And Vega 4 in 1968. <laughs> I had no idea. I don't know if they had any common characters, actually. Let's just see about Vega 4. Oh, Zodian was the villain in Phoenix 5. It appears to have been in Vega 4 as well. Wow. The idea that something so simple would have a backstory of any kind. I mean, was the computeroid Carl in uh, the previous ones? It doesn't look like it, sadly. I get the impression with it that it's kind of the reverse of, you know, a kind of close contemporary bit over here would be the Boy from Space, the Look and Read serial. Mm. But whereas they made a virtue of the low budget by making whatever decent one or two costumes, one or two props they caught and putting them in spooky outdoor settings. That made that all the creepier. But it sounds, always sounded to me with Phoenix 5, like they just spent as much as they could on as many costumes and what they could build sets as they could and then thought, oh, hang on, these all look terrible. Let's show them as little as possible. It, it feels rather like playing Star Trek in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> when, it, when they pull a gun, you expect it to be a stick. I do believe they actually fight the man with the sword with sticks. I don't think they fight the man with the stick with swords, because I think that would make Vic Reeves a little upset. But that is quite astonishing really given the how well it's remembered it apparently it's never been repeated it's never been or at least in australia it's never been released on home media and i'm guessing it now never will be and it's odd that there are these one or two well-remembered series that just sort of fall through the cracks i literally thought i dreamed that for years until, until I met other people who had also seen it. It was one of those things people would always write into Starburst about. In the letters page, like, I've got a, a very strange memory of this Australian programme that was on. Well, the thing is, it doesn't hold the same place in fond regard of nostalgia as almost any other SF series. No! I mean, there is literally nothing as... Nothing as unloved as that. No, I mean, even, you know, even the Tomorrow People has a very fervent fan following. Phoenix Five, I think, I think people, they actually resented it being on when it was on. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps we all should just try and forget. I think there is an important difference that when, you know, certainly when we were young, there wasn't sci-fi available on demand. Mm. And you were glad of anything that came along. That's why I still own Peter Davison's book of Alien Planets. I recall in my youth it felt possible to... To watch the entire canon of Television SF. That yes, um, yeah. it seemed a reasonable aim. And now you, you know you'd be lucky to watch everything that's on Netflix with it. But we're staying in kind of knockoff fictional universes for your next choice, which I don't really have a clip from. So here's a clip from a slightly better thing it was based on. <laughs>
Okay, well, that's part of David Kane's radiophonic score for Radio 4's 1968 adaptation of The Hobbit, which I'm playing because I don't have anything to represent Fear in Furland. Paul, what was that? Fear in Furland is the second of a series of novels that I found in my library um, when I was a, a child. I had a lovely local library, and the little Scottish librarian used to put aside books specially for me. They are written by one Norman Power. The first one's called The Forgotten Kingdom. I'm not sure if they were published or self-published even. There's something very self-published about the texture of the binding and things like that. And this is back in the day when self-publishing really took effort, you know. I say that also because I think not only was uh, The Forgotten Kingdom influenced by Lord of the Rings, not only does it have orcs in it, which I believe is allowed under copyright because it's, uh, you know, it's an old mythological word. It's got Gandalf in it. Really? Yes, I believe it literally has Gandalf in it. How did he get away with that? I have no idea. Because Tolkien was a man who could make the BBC wipe tapes of adaptations (laughs) he wasn't happy with. Uh, You know, he prevented all kinds of film adaptations going ahead. He lost his temper with the school production that said Smog instead of Smaug. So how was this possible? Vastly under the radar, possibly only in my local library. But it's the sequel, the 1974 sequel I really want to talk about, Fear in Furland. The cover sums up what is so utterly metal about this book. And the cover depicts the opening scene of the book, where our hero and heroine have brought peace to the magical kingdom of Furland and are tending a lovely horse or unicorn on the cover with garlands of flowers as behind them the flying saucers land. What? (laughs) Yes. It's an alien invasion of a fantasy kingdom. It's it's like Mars attacks landed in the middle of Lord of the Rings. It's terrific on that basis. And out of the flying saucers step giant mantis-like aliens who want to eat the whole magical kingdom. So, the wizard, who I don't believe is called Gandalf in this one, travels in time to the strange world of 1974, where he picks up some children and brings them back to help sort out the terrifying alien invasion of the fantasy kingdom. It, this book has everything. Was it any good, though? When I was seven, it was brilliant. <laughs> there was a third book, but it was apparently only released in Denmark. I'm really getting unofficial from this. It's yeah. like, do you remember? You'll be one of the few people that remembers this, the Saga of Happy Valley. Yeah, the Saga of Happy Valley was an Avengers fan, as in the Avengers ITV, not Marvel Comics, did his own novel. I think it was in Australia. It might have been Canada. No, I think it was Australia. But to try and get around the copyright angle, he put an extra A and E into Steed and Peel. Oh, no. (laughs) But he didn't get away with it. And uh, it later became a massive collector's item because apparently it's not that bad. There's a point in time where the line between fan fiction and pro fiction is quite blurry. And, you know, um, where Kingsley Amis writes Dr. Sun, things like that, where um, you can, it it depends what you can get away with. Well, I mean, I do remember, you know, when yourself and all the others were doing the new adventures very early on, there were a lot of allusions to actual fictional characters, sometimes actual people, where you were very clever to evoke them without saying their names. Well, I do believe we actually had Sherlock Holmes in it before we were bloody allowed to. Really? (laughs) Yes. You didn't name the goodies, did you? 
No, no. <laughs> and also, of course, you know, people have been randomly using H.G. Wells's Martians all over the place way before they were allowed to. I'm also put in mind of Philip Jose Farmer, who um, would just grab other people's fictional characters. I do have in my stack somewhere Fear in Furland, so I must get it out, out again if I can find it. But I think it would be a disappointment. But the premise, actually, that premise hasn't been done again. That's what's amazing about it. <laughs> <laughs> how it's actually viewed by Tolkien obsessives whether they welcome it as part of the expanded canon in a sort of and another Ooh. thing Douglas Adams kind of way or whether it's pushed conveniently to one side <laughs> I suspect it's probably not I mean they may, they may not be aware of it but I suspect it's not welcome without mobs no I think the business of fitting in where the alien invaders come from in uh, Tolkien's cosmic scheme <laughs> might be a little tough and they never adapted it for Radio 4 either, as far as we can tell, which is a bit of a shame. Oh, I wish they had. <laughs> right, well, I hope the inhabitants of Furland actually thought about engaging the subject of your next choice to defend them against the marauding aliens, because he sounds like he might have been a bit of use. No sound you hear come from Minnie. Minnie's not a girl. She's a computer. Her name is really Miniac, but I call her Minnie for short. I'm Danny Dunn. My mother keeps house for Professor Euclid Bullfinch. The professor invented Minnie. Minnie and computers like her are fantastic. They forecast storms, they run factories, play chess, write music, and astronauts even use them to go to the moon. They're changing the world. Your world. Right, that's a bit of a story record entitled Danny Dunn and the Homework Machine. And I nearly just said Danny Dyer. I've been worrying about that all evening. <laughs> that's a very different series of books. <laughs> I would pay to read them. But Paul, it's not the record, is it? This is the Danny Dunn books. Yes, these are a series of very educational children's stories, which were very formative for me in that they're all about how brilliant science is. They're American books, but again, I think they're much more popular in, in England in the 70s than in America. There's quite a lot of them. There's 14 or 15. And in each one, the professor who's lodging in the, the house of our hero will invent something new or get involved in something. And the initial premise is always quite extreme. But then all the science that follows it up is really real world and interesting and useful. Danny isn't a genius by any means. He, he and his friend Irene, who was one of my first literary crushes, because he doesn't quite know what these troubling feelings he has for her are either, will tag along with the professor being helpful. And the subjects include really quite advanced things like Danny Dunn and the Voice from Space is about SETI and includes the sort of printouts of useful um, information that we might send into space and were, were sent from the archaic Kaibo telescope. And they actually get a message back at the end, which I found rather scary. And uh, there's one about government surveillance, about a drone the size of a dragonfly that's following people around. That's a bit ahead of its time. It really is, eh? No, they're very exciting. And of all the things that I'm talking about here, I suspect these are actual quality. Well, I was expecting them to be slightly more comical than you're actually making the sound, because I'd look at some of the titles and I'm struck by. There's Danny Dunn and the Anti-Gravity Paint. 
the smallifying machine and the universal glue, which really made me just think of, you know, Magic Alex, that scientist who latched onto <laughs> the Beatles, who said you could invent a, an invisible recording studio or something. But it actually sounds quite chilling and creepy. There are some creepy ones. They're, they're basically about adventure. And because they're kind of, they try and be a little hip and they're set in the States in the 70s, they always felt more up to date than the Jennings and the um, British school stories I was also reading at the time. The authors of Danny Dunn are Raymond Abrashkin and Jay Williams. And when I was a kid, I thought Abrashkin was such a weird and wonderful name alongside all those names I was only reading in Marvel comics. Creators who basically came from a much wider ethnic palette than I was used to of the name schemes in Britain. Abrashkin only wrote the first four and then died. And so uh, the, the co-author kept going. And there's 15 of them, 56 to 77. Exactly. They're going to be in libraries when I was growing up. They certainly are. That's basically spanning more or less the start to the absolute bitter end of the space race as well, which is mm. quite odd, you know, because it enters a new phase when the shuttle comes in. And it's interesting that it, it just sort of, the books just cover that era, and then it's time for something new. Absolutely. And as, as I say, things like Danny Dunn, Time Traveller, the premise is fantastical, but the working through of it all is your good science fiction, your here's how paradoxes would actually work, you know? So, have they been republished? Are they still available? Or? I don't believe so. You know, maybe it's about modernisation because, you know, we never know how you know, how things would read to a modern audience if they were beloved to us at the time. You know, I, I think something like those would be actually re- really welcome these days. Well, sometimes it's just that, you know, nobody thinks to reissue things. I mean, one of my big obsessions is there was a, a sort of Cold War psychedelic era spy novel writer called Adam Diamond in the 60s who he wrote for they weren't just you know books about they were absolute bestsellers if you look through any sort of arts magazine in the 60s he's profiled in all of them in you know really expensive king's road gear and so on he retired in quite odd circumstances there's various rumors but it sounds like he just had a bit of a you know typical late 60s flip out and went to live on a commune somewhere Hmm. and those books you know you'd have to do much googling to find people raving about them saying oh i loved them in the 60s what have happened to him but they've never been reissued either and sometimes it's just people don't th- i mean the doom watch novels have never been reissued i don't think and people remember doom watch it's surprising how quickly stuff goes away i mean tom sharp um who was enormous in the 80s yes yeah you couldn't go in the charity shop without seeing his books yeah. everywhere and that wasn't because nobody wanted them it was because everyone had been given eight copies of wilt on high for christmas and now i i think vanished on the way to being forgotten you know so this happens but well, thank goodness otherwise your show would have no material <laughs> well that is absolutely true i've got to got to be grateful for small mercies really <laughs> well, at these books, you know, you can occasionally walk into a charity shop, maybe, and find them and discover something you've not discovered before. Some TV programmes, you're just never going to find anything about ever. Welcome aboard. Our course is set for a journey through time, space, and musical dimensions. Flight plan as follows. Embarkation in time zone one, pre-Earth history. Transit orbit for music of the spheres. Landing in the Star Galaxy. Embarkation in Universe of Continuing Tales. A surprise request stop. Outer Space at 12.20 on BBC One. Okay, Paul, tell us about 
outer space. This is very obscure. This is so obscure that when I put together my telefantasy that is in the archives but not out on Shiny Disc blog post, which I've recently updated, which can be found on my blog, paulcornell.com, we couldn't even find a still to represent this show. I remember it as being a BBC Two thing on a Saturday. I'm not quite sure if that's correct, however. It was BBC One. Ah. Because it was part of, there was a series of very odd Saturday morning programmes produced by a guy called, I think it's Paul Chiani, it's pronounced, but he worked on a lot of shows like Jack and Ori and Play School, uh, but he also was very involved with rent a very early on, things like Hope and Keen's Crazy Bus, Great Big Ruby Horse, anything with a mad premise, but he kept doing these really strange things on Saturday mornings, always with an exclamation mark in the title, because there was Woosh, Zocco, Ed and Zed, and Outer Space, mm. and can just describe it for the benefit of the listeners, if you, if you even can, that is. I recall it as being a sort of anthology show hosted by computer voices on a spaceship deck, which I found spooky in itself, in that it was comprised of different segments, and I suspect the segments were bought in American animations, uh, rather like the Banana Splits had the Arabian Nights and things like that in. One of the animations was certainly about a new ice age, which every was terrified of when I was growing up that a new ice age was approaching people trying to survive with glaciers and things like that I found the lack of presence of anybody recognisably human on the flight deck of this ship very disturbing and again it's one of those things where I remember mostly hiding from it and being wanting to poke it with a stick to see if it was okay <laughs> but again it, the cultural memory of it seems very low we have a use for commentators on my um on my blog of telefantasy that's not available who fill me in and gary russell was the only one who even remembered it so i i think maybe it had something to do with zocco as well i'm not sure that name rings a bell in connection yes zocco was basically presented by in the first series talking pinball machine and in the second right. some bubbling test tubes that basically played groovy mod instrumentals and it, again it was a similar mix of had bits of disney cartoons there were quite odd films of people doing things like speed tests with like georgie fame playing over them or acted out proto-pop videos of pop songs but that had a serial in it as well called Skane and the Moon People which was it was like Vidar and the Ice Monster from Outer Space which that's it Vidar and the Ice Monster it was watercolours it was like a sort of prototype Captain Zepp really the camera moving along artwork and quite distant scary dialogue narration I mean I only know this because a number of years back I worked on a documentary where I used the excuse to see bits of Zocco and Outer Space there's nothing <laughs> <laughs> a whoosh, sadly. Didn't manage to get hold of any Ed and Zeb, but they were quite jaw-dropping. They really were. And I guess the many-clips nature of it means that permissions would be very hard to land for a, a release. I think just the fact that people would just watch it and think, what? <laughs> <laughs> Zocco is very, very strange. The nearest thing I can liken it to is Spike Milligan's Q. Really, mm. It's got that, that similar sort of mix of going between odd kind of silent slapstick things happening for no reason and weird juxtapositions of film and so on it's very disorientating it there is a case for saying they were the first Saturday morning programmes, but they are nothing like 
Saturday scene and swap shop. No. <laughs> no common factors at all, really. But uh, one thing I did notice about Outer Space was it has a section in it, which I assume was in every week, which was facts about dinosaurs. Showing a puppet dinosaur on one of the spaceship's computer monitors. Now, I am sure they are the puppets from Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Oh, the my Doctor goodness. Story. They, they had an afterlife. Well, I hope so, because, you know, it was me that spotted that the Robots of Death costumes turn up in Rent-A-Santa, the Rent-A-Ghost Christmas special. So, <laughs> you know, this stuff was around in cupboards in the BBC, so it is quite possible. Again, if anyone out there can, there will be somebody who can compare like for like with them and either prove or disprove on Twitter that the same dinosaurs, but surely they must be. They won't have gone to all the expense of making puppet dinosaurs for <laughs> something on Saturday morning that a few children would have been too frightened to watch. You watch this at the time do you remember finding when swap shop appeared finding it quite revolutionary or was it just oh there is a new thing that's on no enormously the idea that this was going to be one program it seemed gigantic we'd be used to lots and lots of different things in order on a saturday morning and the business of swapping seemed terribly exciting and involving yeah i i, I recall the a, a feeling of a pleasant joy at it yes i don't remember it starting but i remember even as a young child liking the idea that there wasn't any coolness to the guests they selected it was just everyone was on the equal playing field and famously I remember the week that I'm fairly sure I'm right about this on the same show Blondie were on so I was excited about that and Gordon Murray who did <laughs> Cowboy Green jumped in the Chigley and he was treated by Noel as if it was as important as Debbie Harry and the boys. And that's oh, as it should be, because he got a great interview out of it. Sadly, that's one of the ones that has been erased by the BBC. They should have written a song about him like Rapture. They should have been... <laughs> I'm, try- I'm trying to do a Fab Five Sergeant Major Grout. Uh, no, it's not going to work. Leave it, Tim. It won't work. What was your favourite Saturday morning show overall? I suppose it was Swap Shop. I was never a Tiswas kid. I, w- I was too straight. I found Tiswas... I associated Tiswas with the kids who bullied me, basically. Well, it's genuinely true that me and all my siblings were quite amazed when we found out later that there's supposedly the Swap Shop Tiswas rivalry, because we actually... We sort of watch both... No, because there were so many of us, we just constantly switched over. Yeah, because you know, if a boring John bit Crane came on. said, let's have a look at some of Britain's disappearing wildlife, quick, put ITV on. <laughs> and then, oh, no, it's an outbreak with the, that public information film with the Frisbee, quick, turn back to the BBC. Right, It's just right. constantly swapping over. Yeah, yeah. I, I preferred Swap Shop on balance, but yeah, we, did, we generally did that. Okay, well, for your next choice, there are occasionally some things, as you know, if you're a regular listener to the show, that we just can't identify at all. And this is one of them, so here's some music to help you think of what it might be. Okay, according to YouTube, that is most powerful mantra for serious astral travel. <laughs> serious astral travel. Come back. <laughs> 
because you don't want you don't want a lead less powerful mantle for frippery astral travel yeah. not for, you know, quick day trip this is for serious astral travel well um, the, the, this book that you remember might help us with that oh yes my mother and i um, i had a thing of reading lots of ufo books and weird books and books about magic from the library when i was a kid so i would bring home as well as my dose of science fiction basically my dose of the paranormal alongside it and uh, my mother was strangely uh, attracted to these things i remember us trying to use the force uh, to play marbles with our eyes closed things like that this was a book that asserted that by uh, you had to lie in a particular position and have somebody hold your head in a particular way and then rub in a circular pattern on your stomach and you would feel yourself stretching out and be able to go to past lives and astral travel around the globe and things like that. How that is, get you get enough out of that for a book, I do not know. And also how you can assert something which is so easily easily proven (laughs) to be wrong i do not know but we tried it and you know we 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 thought we felt you know various bits of our body um, extending a bit maybe possibly but uh, there's a limit to what the power of suggestion can achieve honestly Uh, Yes, I I just particularly remember that as part of the category of um, weird 70s books that I brought home and that mum was was allured by. Do you think it might not all have been just a massive prank on the part of the author and he had a really big telescope and he's just looking out for people, trying it and laughing at himself stupid? There are a few of those. There's Patrick Moore's uh, made-up UFO book, which he never admitted to. What? I didn't know about that. Oh, yes. He wrote... No, I can't remember what it is, but it's a prank UFO book about meetings with Martians and Venusians in the British countryside and there's a photograph, a blurry photograph of a Martian returning to his spaceship and it's clearly just a normal dude walking (laughs) walking away, you know, in a shirt and trousers. Everybody thought that Patrick Moore was going to admit to this before he died and he never did. And uh, there's a couple like that. I think it's the SF writer Robert Holdstock or it might have been somebody in Kim Newman's crowd anyway wrote a totally made up Victorian book an encounter uh, uh, an account of a meeting with beings from another world which describes all of the modern UFO stuff in Victorian style and was framed as being it wasn't sold as fiction it was framed as being a rediscovered actual an- Victorian antiquarian book so yeah various people have uh, oh yes and the the, the made up uh, extras zodiac sign um, arachnid <laughs> Which got as far as the popular press and was featured in uh, Your Stars columns for a while. That was created by people who entirely were taking the piss. Well, there were quite a lot of kind of hoax books in the 70s that people kind of never saw through. I mean, this has been mentioned on here before. There was Go Ask Alice, which was purportedly the real diary of a teenage drug addict. And it absolutely wasn't. And it's... You know, it's been debunked as a hoax, but kids still get it now. And <laughs> but the one that I was really loved was was there's a book called The Golden Turkey Awards by Michael Harry Medved, where it's just a list of all the worst films ever made. Yeah, I think personal I had that reviews well. of them. But they say at the end, one of these films is entirely fictional, and we're not going to tell you which one. It's up to you to spot what it is. Oh. And for years. 
people thought it was there was one called him which was a a kind of gay overtoned retelling of the the easter story which has never resurfaced people thought it was that but it later turned out they admitted there's a film called dog is it i'll I'll get this right it's dog of norway it's not dog of finland i was thinking something else there Yeah. yeah dog of norway where the photo of it that they used to illustrate it is a dog where on the back cover, there's a very small photo of them standing with a dog, and it's just a cropped version of that photo. Oh. Nobody ever spotted it. I see. And it was hiding in plain sight all along. But playing tricks on your readers seems to have been a big money spinner in the 70s. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, I read all sorts of nonsense from uh, Ron Daniken and those who followed in his footsteps. The way the mythology was formed out of uh, one author asserting something and the next author would assert that and a little more and it would build and build to the point where things like what happened in Rendlesham Forest the USAF base that apparently was um, visited by aliens one Christmas it seems to have been some bored USAF people staring up at perhaps the planet venus in the sky for a few hours and then going back to bed that may be the entirety of everything that's happened it's become an industry of inflation since then and um, i remember being at a 14 times unconvention where literally we've got to the point now where we've got staff on the base who claim to have been there at the time, who probably were, talking about meeting time travellers from the future who were perceived by us as aliens and things like that. And at the 14 Times Unconvention, they played some of the tapes made that evening. And it's, oh, our eight, we're still sat here and it hasn't moved. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's really, really not very exciting to them at the time. Well, that's like every time I mention one of my major obsessions, which is villain of Ashtar Galactic Command. Oh, how who, fabulous. The, the alien who hijacked Southern TV news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but every time I will get people saying, no, it was real, it was real. Haven't they, didn't they actually, somebody claimed they knew who it was once. But it's very clearly students yeah. Engineering students. I'm, I mean, you know, I sound, I sound ridiculous saying there is no way that was a real alien, but a real alien might have had better diction, I think. Perilously close to the names used by the Etherus Society for their aliens. Or rather, you know, the aliens who contacted them, who. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I really do love this stuff. I think the mythology we make up about, we've made up about um, space over the years is tremendous stuff. And it's as American as, um, as jazz and as been exported all over the world. The many shades of UFO mythology is terrific. Okay, well, part of that explosion in mythology, of course, was calling occupants of interplanetary craft, as recorded by the Carpenters, but originally by Claw 2. But the Carpenters version was a hit thanks to one man, who we're just going to hear a little bit from now. <laughs> Uh, it was just one thing during that. Jane Torville and Christopher Dean live. <laughs> yes, I'm going to do that every week, everybody. OK, that was Terry Wogan falling over in 1983. Falling over in the name of plugging a single by somebody who was going to have a hit anyway. 
But Paul, you were interested in the records he supported that didn't chart. Yeah, Terry Wogan had such an audience for his breakfast show on Radio 2 that he's the big factor on Top of the Pops that isn't Radio 1. So an awful lot of the records he champions are records that will get his audience talking and sending him letters and developing running gags about. So you get some, uh, you know, some pretty weird and wild and actually not very good novels records but at the same time he's got an ear for your actually avant-garde really kind of extreme stuff that also gets his listeners talking he's responsible for for laurie anderson having a hit in britain he's responsible for playing people like klaus nomi um lightning striking again if you recall and that was not a hit and and what i'd like to talk about are the ones that he championed that never quite made it he also of course showed his tasteful side with he's where i first started my adoration for carly simon who's a deeply serious and interesting artist anyway people like Kate and Anna McGarrigal, the folk duo who recorded Love Over and Over. These days, Wogan's personal choices of records, apart from the Radio 2 playlist, I think would put him on Radio 6. He's really quite an eclectic and varied DJ. Raiders of the Lost Ark theme, out of nowhere, on a regular basis. (laughs) The fact that he is about getting conversations going, it's a slightly different raison d'etre to every other DJ. Single bed by Fox. You know, there's an awful lot of kind of vaguely cutting-edge pop in there. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't get Laurie Anderson on Radio 1. Well, not not until Peel in the evening. So, yeah, I'm, I want to um, say, Terry Wogan, all that stuff we don't remember much about that he nevertheless championed. All the obscure corners of the Roger Whittaker back catalogue. Jesse Ray, the Scottish... Oh, uh, Jesse Ray, was that the fella with the... Over with the, the sea. metal yeah. helmet thing on. Yeah, he was a, a Scottish singer who wore full kilt and a battle armour and a sword. <laughs> See, I didn't realise anyone was actually supporting him on the radio, but clearly Wogan was. <laughs> so I think that Wogan should be better remembered for that side of him. I don't think he was ever the same after he came back. And indeed, I got fed up with him years before he finally stopped, because his comedy had turned from a, a blissful engagement with a public who were as into it as he was, to a kind of begrudging, old manish, isn't the world awful thing. And it's just not what you want at breakfast time or any time, really. No, well, I mean, famously, the only reason that the BBC persisted with Dallas over here was that people were actually tuning in to here because, you know, he was honest about it. He loved it because he thought it was terrible. But he was breathlessly relating it to his listeners and people loved hearing him talk about it. And in turn, they started watching Dallas because of that. And the producers of Dallas appreciated that as well. They used to get him to present you know, actual making of documentaries yeah. in America. And so Blake the value Seven. of it, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think he's a major factor in Blake Seven being this huge ratings hit. Apart from those occasions where Doctor Who struck gold, Blake Seven is the only one that runs at quite a high level most of the time. And that's that's thanks to Wogan, I think. Well, I think he... I think Kenny Everett invented the idea of the Beeb. And, you know, it being Mm. the sort of entity. I think Wogan really invented the 
you know, the tropes about it being almost like a prison that you were stuck in with your <laughs> terrible team machine. And, you know, people with unusual job titles lurking behind every corner to, you know, to jump out on you to say, you ought to tone down your shirts, Terry, and that sort of thing. He's every now and then a rebel DJ as well. I recall him having arguments with his producer on air. Uh, things like uh, stopping a Murray Head record halfway through because he said he found it too embarrassing. <laughs> And, um, and then being forced to play it again and telling us that he'd been forced to play it again. This is what you get from a, a really cutting-edge broadcaster. And um, I, I think an album of his uh, obscurities would, would be really welcome. Well, what I really remember is that he would occasionally, every so often he'd dig out one of those failed records he supported again. Yeah. And, you know, play them right up to the end. I mean, I remember being quite surprised when, towards the end of his time on Radio 2, he played Say You Don't Mind by Danny Lane, which uh, mm. is quite an odd record from 1967. You know, it didn't chart at the time, and Danny Lane was quite a huge star. A- anyone who's not heard, it's sort of a like a, an amplified baroque thing and it's very flowery and uh, i'm not sure what time signature even but wogan played that and said i've been playing that since that came out and i thought you wouldn't have imagined him but you know if you had to pick somebody playing that when it came out it probably would have been john peel off on the pirate ship yeah. where nobody could stop him but wogan said he'd been playing it since it came out and i actually believe him he's a much more interesting figure as a dj than people remember him for i think getting involved with his own art form with things like the floral dance was perhaps a really bad idea because that's what the, the memory people have now well i do actually have i'll just see if i can find it a bbc records and tapes album from i think it's 1978 called wogan's winners which has some of the records he supported on. And I'm just wondering if any of them were flops or if they were all hits. Let's have a look. You've got to be a hustler if you want to get on. (laughs) (laughs) It's got him at Ascot on the front in the top hat. What's it got on it? It's got Elton John, your song, Petula Clark's Sailor, Andy Williams, Almost There. These... Actually, no. September are... in the Rain by Diana Washington. <sighs> these, okay. aren't, these, aren't, these are very mainstream choices. Yeah. I'm just seeing if I can find any typically Wogan thing on there. It's got the instrumental version of Floral Dance. Oh, After the Gold Rush by Prelude. Okay. Oh, yeah. Summer the First Time by Bobby Goldsborough. Okay, it appears to be side one is actual hits and side two. It's not. It's got theme from the BBC radio series The Terry Wogan Show with oh. the last track on side two. And, of course, he played the theme from the lives and times of life and times of david lloyd george well he actually played that on the radio yeah yeah actually the original instrumental version of the floral dance is a damn strange thing to play in a breakfast show especially because it really only has one note in it and then he somehow managed to make it sound like it had less than one note when he sang (laughs) over the top of it became record companies i think we need an album of his obscurities well you know it would help if to start with they could at first do a proper representative john peel one that Mm. wasn't just white men with guitars oh yeah because you know uh, had all the spoken word stuff and the drill and bass and he never let it go with joan armor trading did he you know no no it went once once you were in with peel you know unless you really sold out you were you were always there maybe wogan could lead the charge on that one and be the first (laughs) 
first ever <laughs> essential DJ compilation. I, I once um, had a, um, I think it was it must have been an early email, a very early email read out on the John Peel show. I informed him of the pronunciation of a band whose name was a um, a symbol. Ah, Freer. Freer, it was them, yes. Well, if you could email Terry Wogan right now, what would you say? <laughs> I w- I would say that you were you had more taste than people gave you credit for. And you could email John Peel now. <laughs> come come back, it's not too late. <laughs> oh, that's not Paul. It's been brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.